Well, I hope you have your Bibles. Let's open them up to Mark chapter 1. Super easy to find. Get to the New Testament. That's Matthew. Hang a right from one book. It's right in the very first chapter of that book called Mark. And this summer, as I want you to keep remembering, we're looking at the events of Jesus that occurred in the northern part of Israel called the Galilee region. In our passage today, the baptism and the temptations of Christ, they're all in the rearview mirror. They already happened. And in fact, you may not know this, but months have gone by since he was baptized and then immediately sent out in the desert to be tempted. Months have gone by when we get to Mark chapter 1, starting in verse 21. John the Baptist, he'd been arrested by Herod. He's put in prison. Things are heating up in Judea, which is down south where Jerusalem is. So Jesus moves back north for his ministry to Galilee. So things are ramping up down south. It's not yet time. He's got about three more years before he's going to be crucified. So he goes back up north into Galilee to do his ministry. And if you've ever thought of Galilee... As a backwater area, then you really don't know Galilee yet. It was the center of social, political, commercial life. You're really at the crossroads of the trade routes when you're in Galilee. So you've got a lot of the Roman cultural influences, the Greek cultural influences, mixing and meeting with the Jewish cultural influences. So you've got Greek You've got Hebrew, you've got Aramaic languages. All of these you're going to hear in the marketplaces in Galilee. You've got Syrians, you've got Jews, you've got Romans, you've got Parthians. They're all living there. They're all mixing freely. This is Galilee, really distinct, very different than down south in Judea. That is the epicenter of Jewish culture down south. Here you've got it mixed It was alive, Galilee was, very dangerous, very trendy. You know, a lot of people moved downtown into Easton because they like the art scene, they like the restaurant scene, they like the festival scenes. Me, I'm more of a country person. But this is the Galilee region where you've got all of the art, all of the festivals, all of the exciting things that are happening. And it was the place for the explosive ministry of Jesus to take off. He makes his way toward Capernaum, where he calls Peter, his brother Andrew, John, and his brother James out of the fishing industry for a career of following him as a disciple maker. And then all of a sudden you get to verse 21. They went into Capernaum and immediately on the Sabbath, Jesus entered the synagogue. Okay, so you've got all this going on. You've got him entering the synagogue. Now, what is unique about Capernaum? Did you know that the Sea of Galilee, by the way, it's a freshwater lake, 13 and a half miles long, 7 and a half to 8 miles wide. It's in uh, kind of the shape of an egg, actually, but an oval. But uh, there's 16 ports. There's 16 freshwater ports back in the biblical day in the Sea of Galilee. It's an extremely prosperous center of commerce. And I mentioned last week that if it was the Sabbath day for Jesus, it was church day. He's not going to miss church. 
If it's Saturday, that was their Sabbath, then he's going to be found in a synagogue. And back then, a synagogue was in many ways like our church services today, complete with a platform, a pulpit, a seat for them to preach, actually called the Bema Seat or the Seat of Moses. But it was very much very similar to our worship services with some differences. It was a place for them to gather for church. It was a school for the education of their children. They, it was the modern courthouse to be able to try legal cases. And their services had three elements to it. If you ever wanted to know, what's a synagogue service like? Well, I'll tell you, there's three things that are going to happen every time you went to a synagogue. Very similar, actually, to modern day. There's going to be a lot of praying going on. A lot of people praying. There's going to be the reading of God's word. And then there's going to be the preaching on that passage that was read. So you've got prayer, the reading of the word of God, and you've got the exposition. And there's actually seven components of reading. So there's a lot going on in these services. And the synagogue was actually more influential on the Jewish heart and mind than even the temple, which was way down in Jerusalem. And Jesus was fast building a following, and after the events that we're about to look at, I want you to look at verse 28, his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. All right, back to 21, he enters the synagogue, he's invited to preach and to teach, and while we are not given what passage he preaches, like we looked at last, last week, which, which was uh, Isaiah 61. We are told, however, the effect of his teaching. Verse 22, they were astonished at his teaching. Now, let me take a quick time out. If you don't have your Bible in front of you, let us rectify that post-haste. Because you're going to need to see the very words that I'm going to define for you that's going to help you really understand this passage. So everybody should have a Bible in front of them. It's uh, Mark chapter 1, verse 22. Look at it again. They were astonished at his teaching. All right, now you've got to understand a little bit for the gravity of it. What does the word astonished mean? It comes from a Greek word that means to strike with panic or shock. It struck them like a blow. The word we're familiar with was it left them thunderstruck. If you want to put a phrase to it, it blew their minds. That's really what this Greek word astonished means. They've never heard anybody teaching like this. Now we might think, now everybody look at me for a moment because this is kind of how we evaluate preachers too often. We might think it's because Jesus taught them what they had never seen in the Hebrew scriptures before. Wow, I never saw that in there before. I am astonished. But you've got to think a little bit differently because while I'm sure the teaching of Jesus was filled with very fresh understanding, incredible insight, Mark tells us what left them thunderstruck was not what he taught, but how he taught. Now change your minds a little bit now as you understand this. It's the way he was preaching that astonished them. In fact, look what it says in verse 22. He taught them as one who had authority and not as a scribes. The effect of his teaching 
on those synagogue worshipers had to do with his authority. Are you seeing that? So kind of get your thinking a little bit differently because a lot of us, and I'm included in this, by the way, we pick up the latest book that we hear about, hoping that there's going to be some sort of insight into this that's just going to be explosive and help us to figure things out. Or we go to church and we're hoping that the the preacher brings new things out of the Word of God. and, And when that preacher does, we go, wow, that was a great sermon. When he doesn't, well, I kind of heard it all before. That's not even really all of what makes good preaching good preaching. It's the authority of Jesus that blew their minds. Why? All right, so I'm going to teach you something about rabbinical disciple making. What was it like to be a rabbi in the days of Jesus? The body of teaching, now this is actually interesting, so grab on to what I'm going to tell you because this is going to change the way you read the Gospels and some of the epistles in the New Testament. The body of teaching and the interpretation of the Hebrew scriptures that a rabbi had was called his yoke. Now let me give you just a really quick example. You go to some churches and some preachers and they're going to to have a very covenantal theology and all of what they preach is going to come through that grid and then you go to another church and they're going to have a very reformed theology and everything that they're preaching comes through the reformation grid not reformation but the calvinistic reformed grid and then others are going to have more of a theology where you can be in control and you can choose god if you want it all has to do with you And that is a semi-Pelagian theology, and that's going to go through that grid. So what your body of teaching is, your interpretation, what you teach then goes through that. Now that's really incredibly boring. I know that. I know you're about to snooze. I'm going to wake you back up. Just kind of hang into this because this is really important. The rabbi would speak to groups of people. Now this is cool. And he would invite them to take his yoke upon them. Not yoke that you get when you crack your egg. And not yoke that you see when you've got two cows with a wooden thing over their shoulders. Making them walk and pull a a, um, a plow together. Not that kind of yoke. This is totally different in rabbinical understanding. The yoke that I'm talking about is the body of their teaching, the interpretation of their scriptures, and the invitation for their disciples to take it upon them and learn from them. Now watch this, Matthew chapter 28 or chapter 11 verse 28. Come to me, Jesus says, all who labor, all who are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Now listen, take my yoke Upon you. You wanted to know what yoke is? Take my teaching. Take my interpretation of the Old Testament scriptures upon you. And learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. Here it is again. For my yoke, my teaching, my interpretation. That I'm inviting you to come under as an authority over you. It's easy. And my burden is light. That's what that means. So when a rabbi gained a massive following, then he was determined to have acquired 
semecha. That's a Hebrew word for authority. Semecha, authority. And with that came the credibility and the license to make new interpretations of the Old Testament law that you would then put into the oral law called the Torah. Now I'm losing some of you, I think, so I'm going to recap that. When a rabbi gained popularity and a massive following, he gained semikah, or the authority, or the credibility, the credibility that says, now I can make new interpretations of the Hebrew scriptures, and we're going to walk by those interpretations. So teaching, quote in Mark 1, as one who had authority indicates that all the people in that synagogue, they could sense that this Jesus has semicha. This Jesus has credibility. This Jesus has authority, not as the scribes. Why is it not like the scribes? Now, by the way, as I'm watching people yawning right now, and I'm going, oh, you're struggling to stay awake. It's all going to come back for a moment. Bear with me, you ready? It's all coming back to the point of Mark. Most of the people in Jesus' day were illiterate. Everybody grab your Bible and hold it up for a moment. Everybody, second service Sunday morning, do it too. I can't see you, but do it too. Nobody came to the synagogue with a Bible. They didn't have them. They were very expensive scrolls kept in a cupboard that the synagogue minister would take care of and he would pull it out and would hand it to the reader for that weekend. And then it would, he would put it back into the cupboard. Nobody came with copies of the Hebrew scriptures. Mostly, they didn't know how to read. They were illiterate, most of them. So the position of a teacher, listen, just think about it for a moment. If none of you could read and none of you had a copy of the Bible, then the only time you're going to hear the scriptures read to you is when I'm reading it or somebody that can read it reads it to you. So they're coming, they're illiterate, they have no copy of the scriptures. So a teacher and a preacher, incredibly influential, incredibly important, and they had the privileged duty of reading and preaching and teaching. And the people that did that were called the scribes. They're the pastors for the Jewish people. The position of a teacher, the scribe, they belong to a group called the Pharisees. You've heard of them if you've read the New Testament. And, and the revered Pharisees, the revered scribes were called rabbis, which means honored ones. So listen, not every Pharisee, there's about 6,000 of them at the time of Christ, not every Pharisee was a rabbi. Only the honored ones were rabbis. And they had three main duties rabbis did. They studied the law of God. They got to write up rules and regulations for how to keep it. They put it into a big book called the oral law. That's one thing. Studied the Old Testament, made interpretations, put it in the oral law, that's one. And then they taught that oral law to the people. And then number three, they gave judgment in legal cases, kind of like a lawyer. 
And they had a particular style of teaching. Now, here's where it's coming back to Mark. So, listen, if you just zoned out the last 8 minutes and 22 seconds, now you can come back in and you really aren't going to miss a thing. Because I'm going to jump right back into Mark chapter 1 with this statement. They had a particular style of teaching. They almost always quoted from some other rabbi. In fact... In the words of one ancient rabbi, quote, I have never in my life said a thing which I did not hear from my teachers. And this is how they preach. Listen, you go to a synagogue service and you get a rabbi preaching the scripture that was read. All they're going to do is keep quoting and quoting and quoting what other rabbis have told you. But Jesus did not do this. He didn't borrow from the authority of others. His authority was in himself. He would reference what the scribes would teach, but then he would say, but I say to you. He would emphasize his teaching with the words truly, truly, which were the Greek word, which was the Greek word, amen, amen. And when he did that, he is telling his hearers, the truthfulness of what I'm about to say is bound up in my authority, not because some other rabbi said it was so. No one taught like this. If you can just understand this, nobody in the days of Jesus taught like the way Jesus was teaching. Everybody else borrowed the authority of the other rabbis. Jesus never did. His authority is bound up in himself because he is the son of God. And it was astounding to hear him preach. And it left the people thunderstruck. Now, verse 23, there was one person in that synagogue not feeling amazement, but terror. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Now, this is a demonic, possessed Man, he's sitting in church. Do you not know that there, are, there is demonic activity in the worship services? Undoubtedly at Cornerstone as well. Did you catch the plural pronoun that the unclean spirit uses twice? Look what he says, us. And Jesus speaks immediately to the unclean spirit. And the unclean spirit itself said, I know who you are. So we've got a little oddity going on. He's speaking us. And then he says, I. And what appears to be the case is that there's one unclean spirit in this man who is speaking on behalf of others or all of them. And by the way, they knew the unclean spirits, they knew who Jesus' word was because word of their master's defeat and the temptation of Jesus reached their ears. There are very few occurrences of unclean spirits in the Old Testament. Did you know that? Very few in later church history. But it was like kicking an anthill when Jesus publicly began to preach the good news. All of a sudden, you see all of this demonic activity. You know what the Jewish people believed? They believed that there were seven 
and a half million demons. That was common Jewish belief. Some rabbis taught there was one demon for every Jew. And they were bent on destroying them. But they believed that demons hovered over thrones where kings sat and babies or, or cradles where babies lied or laid. And demon possession was a terrible form of suffering. One of the ways that they would try to exorcise, not exercise like a treadmill, exorcise a demon, was to take a very foul-smelling root and push it up the afflicted person's nose, thinking that that was going to drive the demon out. You want to hear something true? By the way, you could go to BBC online, and there is an article on trepanning that is about to tell you what I'm telling you. That was another effort. You would bore a hole in the side of the skull of a demon-possessed person, or one that you suspected was demon-possessed, thinking that then the demon could leave, and they would take that little piece of bone that they got out of the skull, they would put a hole in the middle of it, and they would put it around the the necklace of the chest of the person that was dispossessed. Most of them died during this procedure. Incredibly, BBC reports, I've read it before, some lived. They found skeletons with, ball, with, uh, with skulls with holes in them with bone growth. That only occurs if you're alive. This was one of the main ways of trying to get a demon out of a person. So powerfully, back to Mark, so powerfully had this unclean spirit taken over this man in the synagogue that the Greek literally says that the man was in an unclean spirit. The two were fused together, likely for years and years. And it was when Jesus began to preach that this demon-possessed man cried out. This is the power of the word of God. It shatters the deception that flooded that synagogue with the light of God. And the unclean spirit hiding in that man could not help but blow his cover. Verse 25, but Jesus rebuked him saying, be silent and come out of him. That word silence is a word that farmers used for a muzzled ox. You see, when they would have an ox treading their grain, you know, decimating the kernel from the seed, the chaff from the grain, the wheat, they would muzzle the ox so it couldn't keep eating it while it was doing its job. And that muzzle, the word for the muzzle was a word that Jesus uses for silence. And the unclean spirit convulsing this man cries out with a loud voice and came out of him. There's no battle. Listen, the movies that you watch, that I watch, where there's like a, a give and take, to and fro battle, who's going to be the victor, that doesn't happen ever with Jesus. His authority is complete. There's no contest of wills. And the demon had no choice but to obey. And in rage, the demon screams and shook the man and left while the people, verse 27, were all amazed. I mean, just moments before, the people were astonished. They were blown away. Now, they were amazed. A word that means they were shocked at the display of his authority. There's no mention of being shocked that there was a demon-possessed man in their midst. That would freak me out. 
not in this synagogue. Their shock was directed at Jesus, and they turned to one another asking, who is this guy? All right, now you know what I've just done? Arguably, maybe not a very good job of preparing you for actually the main point of the sermon. I'm going to give you a few takeaways on this. But I wanted to give you all that background to try to get you into that synagogue, into one of those seats, feeling what they were feeling, seeing and hearing what they were seeing and hearing. But there are some lessons in this for us if our ears are open. Here's the first. The power of our greatest enemy has been broken by Jesus. Now please don't take that lightly. I mean, some of you might be going, oh my goodness, I hope the other points are better than this one, because everybody knows this one. But not everybody functions. Not everybody lives like this is true. The power of the devil has been broken by Jesus. Now let me show you something. All you're going to have to do is flip your Bibles forward one page to chapter 3. Mark chapter 3. Can everybody do that? If you're on your Bibles on your phone, then just go to, go to a little bit forward Mark chapter 3, verse 23. And you've got some scribes. These are Pharisees. These are teachers, lawyers. They're accusing Jesus of being possessed by Beelzebub. It's actually a Philistine deity, which was a figure of speech for the Jewish people for Satan. So while it's actually Beelzebub, a Philistine deity... It was what the Jews called one of his names for Satan. And Jesus answered them. Remember, they're accusing him of being possessed by Satan. And he answers them, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Now apply that back to Mark 1 and what you've got is this. Jesus bound the devil when he defeated him in the wilderness of that temptation. The strong man, the devil, the strong man has been bound. And Jesus, listen, this is Jesus who is plundering what the goods of the devil were. This man who was possessed. He's plundering the storehouses of the devil. And he's taking people out. Those who, who Satan had bound and chained. And the synagogue worshiper was one of them. Christian, always remember, you got to get it anchored in your mind. Greater, he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Do not be terrified at the devil. You do not need to be terrified. You need to be wise, very cautious, not brazen, not flippant. You need to know who is the greater and the greater is our God, for he has broken the power of the enemy. The spiritual forces against us, Christian, I'm speaking only to you. Listen, if you're not a Christian, this is not true for you, what I'm about to say. You're actually under the onslaught of the devil. He has his way with you. 
He can come against you when he wants. That is not true with the Christian. The spiritual forces against the Christian has been bound by Christ, which gives you great, great confidence. They could do nothing against you ever unless God allows it. And if he allows it, it's going to be for your greatest good and his greatest glory. Allah, book of Job. But there's more to learn from Mark chapter 1. Curiosity in Jesus is not the same as believing faith. And I'm going to say this super, super clearly. And I'm going to ask all of you, when you get done writing down that point, to look at me and give me your utmost attention. Just sober-minded for a moment. You ready? I am absolutely convinced. Listen, I've been a pastor for 28, almost 29 years now. I think, while I have so much more to learn, I've experienced a lot. And one of the things that I have experienced and I have seen over and over, we have curious people coming to this church, some of whom are not Christians, but they are curious. And I want to say to you super clearly with all my grace and love, curiosity in Jesus is not the same as believing faith. If you're curious and you're not a Christian, hey, welcome to church. I hope you keep coming. But I hope you get from curiosity to believing faith because there's no salvation in, curi in curiosity. None. Did you notice the response of this congregation. When I finally understood this, it was unbelievable. Notice the response when the demon, after the demon is expelled, verse 27, they're all amazed so that they question among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. I mean, we've got the demon shrieking in terror. The, congrega the congregation starts signing up for a Capernaum meetup. They want to start discussing this. They open up a discussion group. I couldn't believe this when I finally saw this. What an incredibly inadequate response. It ought to really pull all of us up short. When you read the scriptures, Christian, and you see the power and the authority of Jesus, come on, really answer this. Are you left in awe? Does it move you to worship? Does it sometimes, occasionally even, drop you to your face in an adoration of Jesus? But you might be saying it's difficult to get excited to just just reading about things. I mean, I wasn't there. And I would say to you, like I said at the beginning of this service, the Word of God is living and active. It's written by God. It is imbued with His power to open your eyes, to excite your heart toward exaltation and amazement and worship. I mean, let, let me bring it down a little bit. You go to the zoo. I think we've all been to one or more. And I'm sure, like me, you leave amazed at the beauty of the animals. 
But then you go to the Amazon jungle and you sleep in a tent and you hear the animals moving around at night and they're snorting and they're fighting just inside the woods and the jungle line. And all of a sudden you feel the excitement and the terror of being in the wild. And you've got the zoo. That was really fun. It's very interesting. It's very formative, but it's safe. But you got the jungle over here. It's visceral. It is untamed. It is terrifying. This is a lot of Christian groups over here. You know, they're curious. They like coming to church. They like singing these songs. They like hearing more about Jesus. They like these sermons being unpacked. But is it dropping you to your face in awe? Sometimes terrifying your soul at the enormity of the power and beauty of our God. When's the last time that you were so overcome by God's character that you could not even speak? In fact, you began to weep and just try to return it to God in praise. I bet for many of us, it's been years. Friend, do you see Jesus as interesting? Or do you see him as the incarnate son of God worthy of your worship and your life? See, God isn't pleased when a glimpse of his son moves us to discuss and debate doctrine and theology, but not worship and obey. The synagogue went wrong. But it leads us to the third point. There seems to have been zero, zilch, no concern for the one that was just delivered. Nobody's talking about him. No one's rejoicing for him. No one's coming around him. At least we don't see that. And all of a sudden, you kind of start to trickle that into your heart and your mind. And you begin to think, well, Jesus wants not our love and worship of him to ever cause us to overlook the life of a sufferer. I mean, if God's really gripping your heart, if he's really opening your eyes, it's going to result in an increase of love and effort for the suffering. That's just the way it goes. You've got a man who is set free from a life-ravaging demon and no one is talking to him. No one is talking or coming around him, helping him to get his life back in order, get his life back on his feet. And how prone we are to discuss and debate theology and, and books and read and love all these new songs coming out from Hillsong and Jesus Culture and and all Michael Redmond's, and we lose track of what really matters. People matter to God. They ought to matter to us. I mean, how wonderful it would have been to see people gathered around this man, helping to get his life restarted. And I think I would want to ask you, and you should ask me as well, do we enjoy hearing and seeing God heal and deliver suffering people more than reading articles on issues and movements and and discussing theology, which I love to do. I mean, what's more exciting for you? Loving, suffering people or reading books? Christian, do you see all those people struggling around you in the midst of even our worship service at Cornerstone? And are you making an investment into the relationships of those who attend even your own church? Or Quite honestly, do you rush out of here as soon as we say amen with, we'll see you next week, same time attitude. That synagogue was guilty 
of having absolutely no concern for the one just delivered. But I want to give you one more point, and it's the last one. Jesus plants seeds of faith today that won't sprout until tomorrow. Now, I want you to catch this because this is amazing. In Mark 5, there's a synagogue ruler by the name of Jairus who would desperately come to Jesus because his little daughter was dying. If you've ever been a parent with a sick child, you know how much your heart breaks. I've never seen the grief as deep as a parent's grief, and I've seen a lot of grief. And many experts believe that this same grieving father was the ruler of this very synagogue at Capernaum where this man was possessed by an unclean spirit who had invited Jesus to come up and speak, and he witnessed in that worship service the power and the authority of the Holy One of God. And if that is true, then the seeds of faith were planted that day, and they weren't going to sprout until a crisis hits his life later. And I'm going to ask you, when is your faith seed going to sprout? You come to this church, I'm going to tell you, even when they're not done very well, every single sermon is going to plant the seeds of the gospel. That's our aim. In our worship services, we're planting the seeds of the gospel. But listen, look at me for a moment if you would, please. Some of you, those aren't going to sprout until a trial comes, until a crisis enters your life. And when that crisis comes... Let your faith flourish. Plant the seeds. Water them with patience. Jesus is our sovereign farmer. He knows how to author and grow those seeds into a harvest of faith. Parents, it's the same way with us. You plant, you plant, you plant. Looks like dry, barren ground. You get those seeds below the surface with your love with your compassion, they, Lord willing, will sprout at some point. So water them with your tears and your prayers. And it calls for patience and to trust for those who you love that don't yet believe. you got to trust Jesus for their salvation. Have you seen the authority of Jesus in this passage, in this incident, in this synagogue? Is there anything in your life, friends, that's overwhelming you? That's held you in its power? That's too big for you? Do you believe, I mean, honestly, I mean, I'm going to ask you this question, and your, and your automatic response is going to be just to nod your head internally, but I really want you to stop it at the gate of your reasoning mind and really deliberate. Do you believe in the sovereign, Satan-binding, plundering power of the Holy One of God? And are your eyes more interested in the person of Jesus than discussing about Jesus? And have your eyes of mercy been drawn to the suffering people all around you, directing your hands and your feet toward them? 
If not, maybe there's some course corrections you need to make today. You know, the response, by the way, of preaching is this. It's actually twofold, and I'm going to end with this. If you sit under a gospel sermon and the Spirit of God is echoing these words into your soul and you're going, this is the way I'm living, this is the way I'm living, this is the way I'm living, then you're your only right response is to say, God, thank you, because it's your grace being exercised in my life to live the way you want. It's not me. There's no room for pride. It is you. Thank you, God, and I worship you. However, if you're listening to these sermons and it's echoing, this is not the way you're living. This is not the way you're living. This is not the way of your li of living. Then your only right response is one of confession, which means you agree with God because he's the one speaking this, not Tim Ackley. This is God speaking through me, hopefully, through his living word, definitely, into your soul. Your only right response is, I see it, I agree with it, and I'm going to throw it on you because I have no power to fix what's broken inside of me. So I come to you in repentance and plead for your power. Those are the only two responses that ought to ever be given to a gospel sermon. Amen? Let's pray.